This podcast is supported by SunGrow. SunGrow itself supports some of the biggest and most innovative PV and battery systems in the world with its inverters. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world, and all that volume, it creates complexity. To manage that complexity, it needs the best people to deliver the best products on time and working perfectly. That means people like Jill Dunn, who you're going to hear from later in the show. Find out more about SunGrow's solar and storage inverters at sungrowpower.com. This week on What It Takes, how an aspiring astronaut went from working on a laser system for the Mars rover to sleeping in her car for months, and then co-founded a startup that turned CO2 into chemicals and fuels. For some reason, I had this thought in my mind that like, oh, when I graduated from grad school, you would just get a high salary. That just would happen. Like when it was clear that we that I was not, then I had to really make some like tough choices. And so I was like, okay, well, let me see how I can like cut my rent and all that kind of stuff. So what did that what did yeah. that look like? Yeah. Well. <laughs> I guess I was like living in my car for a few months. A few when I months. Was, yeah, yeah, a little few months. Um, which actually is kind of nice. Berkeley has some very nice areas. <laughs> they're pretty, they're relatively safe. You know, it was like camping every night. Yeah, you definitely so have that uh, founder optimist yeah. lens. <laughs> Welcome to What It Takes, an interview series produced by Powerhouse and Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this series, we hear from founders and executives at the most influential clean energy companies, their backgrounds, their passions, their struggles, their deals, their management philosophies, their near-death experiences. In this episode, Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch sits down with Dr. Itasha Cave, the co-founder and chief science officer of Opus 12. Opus 12 is a team of engineers, electrochemists, and materials scientists working on a tech that converts carbon dioxide into usable products. They're developing a metal catalyst that can turn CO2 into synthetic gas for fuels and ethylene for plastics. If it works at commercial scale, it would be a vital solution for slashing CO2 from industrial sources. The company's brought in about $20 million in funding so far. In this interview, Itasha talks about the inspiration for the tech, which came from her love of space and desire to go to Mars. She talks about being a founder who's also a black woman and how that's influenced her. And she talks about where Opus 12 is in their pre-revenue development. This conversation was recorded live at the Powerhouse headquarters in Oakland, California. To learn more about the future speakers and attending a live event at the usual venue in Oakland, go to powerhouse.fund and click on the events tab. And now, here is Emily Kirsch with Dr. Itasha Cave. Itasha, welcome to Powerhouse and welcome to What It Takes. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So you grew up in Crestmont Park, which is 20 minutes south of downtown Houston. You are a middle child. I understand you have an older brother and a younger brother. Your mom was a, a public elementary school science teacher. Your dad started as a bus driver, ended up doing contracting for the county's transit system. Uh, and I'm curious, what was Crestmont Park like for you growing up? And what were you like as a kid? Back then, it still is a working class, low income, uh, mostly black neighborhood. And so um, I grew up in this neighborhood and go- went to the local elementary school, which is a which is public school. But all the public schools, for the most part, in the metropolitan Houston area are magnet schools. And so my local public school had an amazing fine arts program. And so um, I did ballet and track and um, did orchestra and was in the band. Um, so I just did a ton of different extracurriculars because of this fine arts program there. And um, I would say as a kid, I was pretty 
driven and kind of a busybody. In fact, my older brother, even to this day, sometimes he'll be like, Tasha, you're doing too much. Just stop. You know, and like, and I was just like, you know, I, I had like, you know, dance practice after school or I was like practicing in the orchestra and like just doing all these different things. Um, and, you know, even back as a kid, the the kind of mantra I had in my mind or, the, or how I was sort of thinking about things was like, how can I um, like, like leave Texas or leave and like, go and explore the world outside of um, like Houston where I grew up. Um, and cause my mom would always be like, I'm not going to raise any adult children. Like if you are, you know, when you get 18, you're out, I see to, you know, find your own way. So I was kind of like, okay, well, if I, you know, want to get out, I need to like figure out how I'm going to live after that. Cause it, she made it sound like it would be this horrible thing of being kicked <laughs> out on the street uh, if I didn't like go to college or something. So, so I would, I would kind of um, think a lot about like, oh, well, let me, work on these extracurricular activities so I can make sure I have a good college application, I can go to school. How old were you when you first had that thought? Like, I need to make extracurricular choices so that I can go to college. How old were you when you first had that thought? (laughs) Probably like eight or something. (laughs) Yeah, I was was pretty young. Um, And then tell me about what kind of student were you? What were you drawn to? What did you love? Yeah, I was super nerdy um, as a kid. And I was very much drawn to math and science. Um, It just really made sense to me. I mean, like language and like English, like I had a a bit of a harder time with, um, but still was like always like studying and always in the books and um, really trying to like always strive to make an A. I definitely was like very much like um, more so when I got into high school and and I realized like, okay, you can get academic scholarships and go to college. And like, then I was like, okay, well, I must get like the best grades possible. Were you proud of being a nerd and getting straight A's? No, not always. Um, I think... I remember like in middle school, especially um, like I would um, like hide in the bathroom, like when uh, report cards were coming out, um, not because I had a bad report card, I actually had like all A's, but I just didn't want to have to like compare report cards with my friends. Cause then it'd be like, Oh, you know, they would like make fun of me or something. And so I would just like go and get my report card later. Um, and so it was, it wasn't until really I got into college where it was like, really kind of cool to be a nerd still is yeah 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 nerds rule (laughs) um how did you end up attending this engineering magnet high school yeah so when I was in middle school um there was a substitute teacher there okay so he he had this like reputation of being this um fortune teller kind of thing like he was like oh he could he was sort of psychic and I was, and I don't think any of us believed it. We were kind of just like, oh, what's going to happen in my, in my life or whatever. So I asked him like, well, what's going to happen to me? Like where I'm going to go to school. And, and he was like, you know, you should try to like go to this engineering school um, up North in, in the North side of Houston. I, and I lived in the South. So it was uh, quite a ways away. And I just kind of out of spite was like, okay, fine. I'm going to go check out the school and, and show him that he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Um, and I went there and I loved it. And they, they had this, you know, orientation, you take this test to get in. So when I went to take the test and got the tour, I was like, okay, I have to go to the school. Upon graduating high school, I know you got into your dream school, you got into MIT, but you decided to join an entirely new East Coast college, like first class, um, 75 people in part because they offered you a full academic scholarship. You also got a scholarship from the National Society of Black Engineers, um, the East Coast School called Franklin Olin College of Engineering. Um, you were, yeah, one of 75 people in the first class, uh, the inaugural class, the only black person. Um, what was the program like and how was it being the only black person in the class? Yeah, so uh, Franklin Olin um, 
you know, yeah, it was a startup college, like, um, and, and in some ways that it did attract me to it. It was like being part of the first class. I could, you know, shape how the school was going to form. Um, so, it, you know, it was, it was really exciting and, and really amazing to be a part of that. It felt like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, but at the same time, like, I, it's like, I was like, whoa, I'm the only black person in the class. And I didn't realize that until the first day because even though they sent us pictures of people, there was one person that, like, the lighting was a little off, so I was like, maybe he might be, but he wasn't. And so I was like, okay, well, I, was, I was there. And I, I mean, I think looking back on it, I, I, I don't know that I handled it all that well in terms of my internal anxiety. I was pretty anxious, you know, at that time. And I didn't really know what that was or know what that meant. And kind of I had this feeling like, oh, everyone's, like, expecting me to, you know, perform a certain way. And, like, there's, like, this mantra, I think, within... Um, certainly my parents said it a lot in, within the black community. It's like, as a, as a black person, you have to be twice as good to be seen as the same. And so I had that mantra going through my head. And so, like, I would be like, okay, I got to, like, be twice as good. And, like, and in the end, I think, like, if I could go back and I would, I would have handled it a little bit differently in, in terms of just dealing with the emotional part of it. Um, but otherwise, I mean, it was a really fun environment. It was very hands-on and project-based learning. So they really encouraged us to um, do projects and work in teams and build stuff. Um, so that was a really cool part of the school. What would you have done differently? Learning about uh, emotions and like having more emotional intelligence. Um, and I think just realizing like, like engineering is just challenging and like talking with other people and working, you know, working in groups and like working through problem sets and like not feeling like I always have to like know the answer or like be perfect or like have everything kind of known that it's okay to um, kind of have to figure, you know, figure things out at a group and like that and kind of deal with that and, and not have that, not have the perception that like, oh, I'm like, letting people down if like I didn't know something. I know after graduating from Franklin Olin, you interned in Antarctica um, uh, via the National Science Foundation station um, for five months where you were primarily a handy woman, but also uh, worked on the laser diode for future Mars rover missions. Tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, in my senior year, there was a, um, one of my classmates had went to New Zealand for his study abroad and he found out about the Antarctic program and he told me about it and I was like, oh my God, this sounds so awesome. I'd really love to go to Antarctica because I, um, you know, have aspirations of being an astronaut and a lot of times the astronauts will train in Antarctica. So I'm like, let me go and like pretend to be an astronaut and stuff. So, um, I, wait, I have to ask, how old were you when you decided you wanted to be an astronaut? Well, I mean, growing up in Houston, you know, like Everyone's an astronaut. Yeah, everyone's an astronaut. <laughs> I mean, like, when you're, like, by, like, probably, yeah. you know, as a kid, you, I think a lot of kids want to be astronauts. I just, like, didn't stop wanting to be <laughs> You still an want to be an astronaut, I still right? want to be an astronaut. Okay, I still we're going to come, we're going to yeah. talk more about that later, but sorry. Yeah. Please continue. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, so I found, uh, I, I applied and became part of the support staff there, um, but my internship program required a project, so the project I did was this laser diode. Uh, uh, testing for this Mars rover, and I, I contacted a professor who was working on the project, and I was like, hey, I'm going down there. Do you want some testing done? Can I pro progress the project further? Um, so it was an amazing place. Like, I, I loved being in Antarctica. I would love to go back at some point and um, winter over or, or just be there. For your yeah, astronaut so. training? Yeah, astronaut training. Yeah, that'd be great. Astronaut training again. And yeah. you were applying to graduate PhD programs from Antarctica, 
And I know you had your heart set on Cal and you got into both Cal and Stanford, but Stanford sent you an email and called you, whereas Cal sent your acceptance letter via mail to your parents' home. And so you didn't actually get the Cal letter. Yeah. Well, they, they sent it to Antarctica because I was, okay. I was like um, having all my mail. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it got forwarded to my parents' house. Like after I, I'd, I'd already like visited Stanford and then, um, and so it was like, um, pretty close to the deadline to accept. Um, and and when I visited Stanford, I, I was sort of hooked right away. Like I was, I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to Stanford. Even though I'm much more like a cowgirl at heart in terms of like culturally, like- just, What does that mean? Just like, you know, more earthy grounded, like bohemian <laughs> kind of type. Like, um, so I, now that I am in Berkeley, um, I, I do, you know, just like, I still love it. I think it's great. You know, it would have been a great place to go to grad school, but I'm happy I went to Stanford for sure. Um, tell us about your time at Stanford and particularly how did that lead to ultimately the founding of Opus 12? Yeah, so at Stanford, um, I was in a, uh, a lab, um, the lab of uh, Thomas Jaramillo, and he was looking at uh, mimicking uh, biocatalysts. So, um, you know, in nature, plants take CO2 and they uh, have a catalyst that converts that CO2 into useful stuff and they use sunlight for that. And so um, that was one of the reactions that he was looking at creating metal-based catalysts that could do that in industry. So, you know, could we take CO2 the way plants do and make stuff out of CO2? Um, and so, you know, I, I was in that lab and we, um, my, myself and my co-founder, Kendra, we, we were... Um, like she actually joined a lab before I did, so she was in the lab, so I joined with her. And we were some of the early people looking at these metal catalysts on a very basic science side. I mean, we were working with a computational group, and they were doing calculations, on the, and we would make some catalysts, and we would, you know, we'd kind of go back and forth and brainstorm to try to figure out on almost like a quantum mechanical level of like why these metal catalysts could do this conversion. And then toward the end of um, my PhD, Kendra had already graduated and was at Slack doing a postdoc, um, Stanford Linear Accelerator, not the messaging. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah Slack didn't exist. Right? That's true. But yeah, yeah, Stanford Linear Accelerator. Um, and she, um, and so, so, yeah, I asked her, like, hey, you know, what do you think about trying to scale this up and bring it to industry? And um, she was, um, you know, interested in seeing where it could go. And then, um, I later met Nicholas at uh, at the Stanford Space Club. Actually, it was the first time we had met. Uh, they had like a business and engineering student night, and then later on, um, we we met again at a clean tech event where they were bringing business school students and engineering school students on a Saturday together to talk about clean tech challenges and and how we could work together to like overcome them. And so I pitched at that time what was my graduate research, and it was like, hey, you know, there's this business plan competition. We're looking for a business school student to help us with some of the business model aspects. You know, if anybody's interested, let me know. And, um, and there was a handful of people who like expressed interest, but Nicholas like actually followed up and we met up for coffee and then we did the business plan competition together. And the three of us um, got to work really closely um, for that competition. And kind of that was like sort of the beginning of us realizing like, okay, we can, we can work well together and um, we each, you know, bring our own value to the, to the, potential company. So we had the competition. Uh, 
Uh, we lost that competition. <laughs> uh, but we did uh, Elon Gurr, who is the now director of Psychotron Road, was our was one of our judges there. And um, he later, uh, be, you know, because we were in that competition, contacted us and told us about Psychotron Road, uh, which was um, really what kind of got us started and kind of ramped up. Um, and so by us being in that competition, like kind of, I guess you could say we won later on <laughs> by being in Psychotron Road and all that stuff. So. And for those who aren't familiar, tell us about what is Psychotron Road? Yeah, so Psychotron Road is a uh, fellowship, uh, entrepreneurial fellowship program at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, although they've recently rebranded and now they're called Activate and they've expanded to Boston and they're doing all this big stuff. It's like lots of new things happening. You were part of the, it was the very first cohort, right? Very first, of, yeah. You have a, a tradition of this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like all these startups, yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, we were the first cohort. It was called M37 back then. So it's been, it's, um, it's evolved. We've seen the evolution of the program. Uh, but effectively what it did is it gave us the space and um, the capacity to kind of um, work on the technology to see if it, you know, what could become of it. Um, so we, you know, we got um, direct support in terms of salaries and supplies and um, access to research at the, at the lab, free rent at the lab, which was amazing. Now that we're in our own space, I'm like, that was a huge deal. <laughs> that was free. Um, yeah, and we've, um, and, and also mentorship on the business development side. Um, so that was a, a two-year program that we did, and we've um, graduated from that and was it clear early on, uh, so you did this business plan competition, worked well together, was it really clear who would play what role as far as um, Nick being, Nicholas being CEO, Kendra being CTO, you chief science officer, how, how did you decide and how did you come up with your title particularly for yourself? Yeah, uh, it was not clear initially, I would, at least not for me, maybe it was for Nicholas and Kendra. Um, we definitely um, put off the conversation um, for, you know, as, as long as we could. I think, I think even Psychotron wrote was like, guys, you got to put some titles on the website. You can't like just keep calling yourself co-founders. Um, and so we had the conversation and um, so, yeah, it's kind of tricky because, so Nicholas, of course, has a business background. This is a second startup. And so for him, like CEO was like the role that he had really wanted and like made, um, made sense in, from his perspective. Um, and then, you know, Kendra and I both have technical backgrounds, so like, you know, it's like, well, you know, what do you do when there's two technical co-founders? Like, so CTO, um, uh, Kendra took, and then, um, so then it was kind of, like, Nicholas was like, okay, I'm going to be CEO, Kendra was CTO, then it was the question of, like, what are we going to do with me? Um, and so we were, like, looking, we, like, literally Googled, like, chief X, oh, <laughs> you know, like, what can you name it? So, so chief scientific officer came up, and that Seemed appropriate. Um, it's also, you know, so Spock was chief scientific officer. Oh are nerdy. So that was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, but it, I mean, it's also like, I'm sure chief science officer probably means like second technical co-founder in a company because it's, it's just like, we needed something to call me. <laughs> and then I know, so you were able to get a 75K grant early on from the Tomcat Center at Stanford, um, as well as support through Cyclotron Road, but I'm curious, how much were you paying yourselves when you were just getting started, and what did that mean for you and your life early on? Yeah, so so Cyclotron Road did provide a salary, but they only bring in the technical co-founders, so we had Nicholas, um, and so um, 
and, and we also wanted to hire people. And we didn't have money like in the company to hire external people. So um, we came to the conclusion that we would need to like cut our salary and like give the you know give a good chunk of our salary that we were getting from Cyclotron Road and you know basically into the company so we could hire people and then also um, you know Nick could have an equivalent uh, salary. Um, so so it was basically like you know me going from this uh, grad student who had a stipend that was you know somewhat barely livable and then like being maybe like paid like a postdoc. Um, which I think for me was a little challenging because for some reason I had this thought in my mind that like, oh, I would like, you know, I would, when I graduated from grad school, just like you would just get a high salary. That just would happen. Like, and it, even, even though we were starting a company, I just kind of assumed like, okay, like you would just kind of have a decent salary. And so like when it was clear that we, that I was not, then I had to really make some like tough choices. And so I was like, okay, well, let me see how I can like cut my rent and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I was really like, like creative in ways that I could, um, really keep costs low while I was. What did that, what did that look like? Yeah. Well, I I guess I was like living in my car for a few months. A few months. Yeah. Yeah. A little few months. Um, which actually is kind of nice. The Berkeley has some very nice areas. <laughs> they're pretty, they're relatively safe uh, from what I could tell. And, um, yeah. And like, you know, it was like camping every night. Um, yeah. You definitely so have that, uh, founder optimist yeah. lens. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most solar inverters in the world. Those inverters are the backbone of some of the biggest and most innovative PV projects. And when you're putting such high volumes of power electronics in the field every day, you need people like Jill Dunn to make sure everything goes smoothly. Jill is a project manager at SunGrow. I caught up with her during a moment of downtime in the warehouse. The time just got by me. I didn't realize it was this late already. Busy day already? Oh, it always is. Keeps it interesting, I guess, huh? Jill's job is to make sure everything happens just the way it's supposed to. That means inverters are built to spec, they're shipped on time, and they fire up smoothly. So if, if something needs to happen, they go to you. Correct. What's the consequence if one of those pieces goes wrong? Uh, during commissioning, luckily, I can say that I have not had any uh, central inverters during a commissioning not turn on. So I have not had to um, worry about that, which is a wonderful thing. Nearly two and a half years at SunGrow, and Jill has a completely clean performance record. That means she's in high demand, and with nearly three gigawatts of inverters already booked for this year, her schedule is packed. Oh yeah, I look at my calendar, and my calendar up through Q2 and, and onward of next year, and that's pretty much all I can focus on at this time. I don't want to look too much farther out. It may scare me on how much more is on there. It is shocking looking at it, and it is absolutely wonderful looking at it at the same time with our growth. You just need to be very organized and detailed, and you can get through any project. So maybe if analysts want to understand the growth of the industry, they don't have to crunch the numbers. They just need to look at your calendar. <laughs> absolutely. When you choose SunGrow Inverters, you aren't just choosing best-in-class technology. You're choosing people like Jill who work around the clock to make sure those inverters are meeting the highest performance standards. There's a lot of steps involved. You know, this is a very intense, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure to get things done on time. The best part of this is being able at the end of it to hand off the reports to the customer and 
you know, have another successful project done. So so do customers feel like they can stand by the Jill Dunn seal of approval? I believe so. <laughs> you can get more information on SunGrow's solar and storage inverters at sungrowpower.com. Um, okay, so a couple months of that. Um, and then you were able to to raise a really impressive amount, more than $10 million from the time that you started, which you incorporated in mid-2015, really got started in mid-2016. Since then, you've raised over $10 million in non-dilutive capital, um, including um, an SBIR grant uh, through NASA, a National Science Foundation SBIR, um, uh, some capital through DOE. And then since 2016, you've raised both a pre-seed and a seed round from investors like DCVC, NEA, Dolby Ventures, Breakout Ventures, um, so curious, what was the fundraising process like, especially really early on, like when you were just getting started? Yeah, wow, that sounds really impressive when you say it. It like is that. really impressive. Wow, it is. Um, well, and I want to be clear, it's it's really expensive to run the company. We have over, we have 24 employees now. So like we, you know, it takes a lot of capital and we, we definitely um, use it to accelerate the technology. Um, but yeah, fundraising, um, so in the early days, it, you know, it, it was quite a challenge we had to figure out. Certainly, so for grants, um, you know, we sent out nine grant applications before we got our first ones. Our 10th grant application was the one that we got. It was this um, NASA SBIR. Um, and, and so we had to kind of come up that learning curve to really know how to de- describe the technology in a way that's digestible to people who are scientists but is not in our field. And how do we create a work plan where we really clearly lay out, like, how we're going to overcome this challenge that we're writing about in the grant and how we're going to like commercialize this technology. And like, so we had to do a lot of that, um, that learning early on, um, on the fundraising side. I mean, luckily because we, you know, um, we're, you know, we're in Psychotron road, we had cut our salaries and we had this non-dilutive funding. We could kind of, uh, slow down the uh, need to raise private funding. And so we, um, you know, we could build relationship with investors and really, um, kind of know who our potential allies would be, who the potential investors would be, which is really huge. It's, it's really nice to be able to engage with investors when you don't need money. And so to, to, to kind of talk about our technology and just share in the excitement and like have them kind of follow our progression, like have them see us meet these technical milestones and that kind of thing was really, um, really huge for us to be able to raise the pre-seed and seed round. Um, and, and a lot of us just sort of going out and really having lots of meetings and um, kind of pitching the idea and then doing the due diligence. Um, so it's, uh, it's a lot of work to mm. raise funds for sure. Any advice for entrepreneurs that are just starting the fundraising process now? Yeah, I would say um, definitely get lots of feedback from, um, you know, mentors and allies. And, um, you know, even now we're continuously working on like how we talk about the company, like how we're going to use the funds, like how, you know, how we'll, it will accelerate the technology. Um, and yeah, kind of just kind of putting reps in, I would say like getting out there and like talking about the technology as, as much as you can. And, um, you know, not every investor is going to see the light and come over, but like it's good practice to, to get out there as much as, 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 much as you can. Mm-hmm. As far as the product goes, so you are recycling CO2 into chemicals and fuels using only water and electricity as inputs. What kinds of chemicals and fuels are you creating and for who? Yeah, so um, we can make, uh, we're, we're really targeting three molecules that we can make from CO2 and water 
using these metal catalysts. And those three molecules are carbon monoxide, ethylene, and methane. Um, and even though carbon monoxide is something you wouldn't like want in your home, for example, it's definitely a very viable industrial uh, molecule. And so carbon monoxide uh, combined with hydrogen can actually become a fuel. And so one of, uh, one of the contracts we've gotten recently was from the Air Force, and they're interested in making jet fuel uh, anywhere in the world because uh, fuel convoys actually are huge targets, and they've, uh, they have, from, from what we've been told, like the largest number of casualties mm -hmm. and deaths have come from fuel convoys you know, since like the Vietnam War. Um, and so if you can make fuel on site, then you can reduce casualties from that. So um, you can take CO2 from the air, you can, which is not a device that we make, but you can, you can buy it off the shelf almost now. There's a company in Switzerland that makes them, and then you can run that CO2 through our device, uh, make this carbon monoxide and a bit of hydrogen, and then you run that into um, a Fischer-Tropsch reactor to make jet fuel. And you can imagine that like in a shipping container um, somewhere and making jet fuel just from you know, a remote source of electricity, so maybe solar or wind. You could make jet fuel anywhere in the world. So that's just one example of kind of how we can take CO2 and actually make a real product from it. Uh, we also are looking at um, uh, components and consumer products. So there's a couple of luxury brands that we're talking with that want to have a carbon uh, negative footprint or reduce the, the carbon impact of their, their products. So we can make um, components that are indistinguishable from the component that's made from petroleum. So we, um, we're you know, pursuing those pathways as well. That's really exciting. Um, what size, what is the size of the system that you've built in order to do this this recycling or this conversion? Yeah, our first unit is in our lab in, in Berkeley, and it's about the size of a dishwasher. And that unit um, came in from our manufacturing partner that's in Connecticut um, early this year. And in fact, it, it, was, it came an hour before Bill Gates uh, came into our lab because um, Bill Gates um, came into your lab. Yeah, they were doing this. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, awesome. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he came to several Psychotron Road companies, so it was like something that they had worked out. But, uh, but yeah, he was there, uh, and um, you know, they did a Netflix special with him where they were filming for him. So, are um, you in it for like half a second? That's a yes. But yes, <laughs> I'm in it. Yes, of course. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's the third part around minute 10, if you're interested in watching a third series, yeah, check it out. Um, but yeah, so this, this, you know, we got this unit in like an hour before he arrived. And so we were like scrambling to like get it off the truck and get it inside. And so it was this amazing, really uh, special team moment that, um, was, it was amazing. Um, so that's in our lab now. So that so we're, you know, um, making carbon monoxide and like sending that to, to small manufacturers to make products from it. Um, we're also scaling up to the next size. It would be about the size of an industrial refrigerator. And then um, you can also imagine one that's a little bit bigger than that, which could fit into a shipping container. And then, then there'd be a whole building size. Um, and that would, that would where we'd be converting tens, hundreds of tons of CO2 per day. And is that the ultimate goal that these units are primarily building size? Or you think you'll always have the variety of sizes? I think we'll always have the variety of sizes because you get the biggest impact in terms of CO2 conversion at the large scale, but sometimes the biggest like margins and revenue and like building the company and supporting the company comes from the smaller scale units, um, just because to get these molecules that we can make, um, end users are actually paying more to have these molecules oftentimes delivered on delivered to their location, and so um, I think we'll always have this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And the idea is to place these at the source of emissions. So for example, next to a glass manufacturer or a refinery, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, take emissions um, directly. Um, depending on the concentration, you might have to capture them with, um, so use another technology to capture and concentrate, and then you'd run it through our technology. But if the CO2 emissions are already concentrated, you could just run it through our system and, and not have to have a um, upstream uh, separation or purification system. How was the product development? You're a hardware company. It's hard. It's in the name. Uh, what what was your product development like over the past few years? And and now, what does the manufacturing side look like? Yeah, it was. It, it is hard for sure. It's um, we had to really transition the way we think about um, almost like doing experiments and running the lab from our graduate school days. Certainly as a grad student, you know, you work on like one experiment, you take it from beginning to end, you write up the paper, and then you, you know, you publish it. Um, and in the lab, you know, we have people now who are very like um, specialized in one area. So we have people who just make the electrodes and then just do the testing. And you know, quality control matters a lot. Like you know, we we time steps and and make sure that you know the temperature is the same and control the humidity in the room and um, all these different things that that um, can matter for um, creating these these electrodes and making sure we have very similar electrodes um, every time we make them. Um, and so um, it's yeah, it's been a, a you know we had to again like learn how to really create tight tolerances and like make sure we have MEAs that are, MEAs stand for membrane electrode assembly, which are basic electrode that's the component that we make to enable these CO2 um, reactors that, we, that we're creating. Um, and so really learning how to uh, develop that and, and create a, a solid um, manufacturable electrode basically. Mm. As you're developing the product, you're building your team, you're now at 24 people, how did you know how to do this? Oh, uh, sorry. I didn't mean to give an impression that we knew. <laughs> I mean, we're still figuring it out very much, um, building the plane as we fly it. Um, I mean, it, it really helps to be able to talk to other people who've been there and, and our peers. Um, you know, someone mentioned this, and they were joking, but I think it's actually pretty close to true that we've, we've been in pretty much every accelerator or incubator that we could be a part of. And just having those ecosystems around has been really helpful. Um, you know, when we, when we have a question that pops up or we, you know, um, need to figure something out. And we, we certainly bring in consultants as well who can uh, be more hands-on and, and kind of help guide us. Because there's so many aspects of just building this electrode. Um, so having someone who's been through it who can give us expertise advice but isn't necessarily like in-house can be super valuable. Mm -hmm. As far as that support, um, both Elon and Matt and many others are here from Cyclotron Road. Anything you want to say specifically to them? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I, um, I think Cyclotron Road is great. I mean, we, I think we, you know, in the... In the early days, in, in my mind, certainly there were moments when I had thoughts like, oh, God, I don't know if we can even get this thing off the ground. It was really tough to um, get early stage capital. No one was really investing in clean tech at that time. And, and so, you know, Psychotron Road came at a really pivotal uh, moment for us to really be able to um, get where we are today. Mm -hmm. um, what did you learn from the early days of Opus 12? Yeah, I've, I think... I've, um, learning a lot about giving feedback and um, 
kind of organizing processes and organizing teams. Um, that's at least something I continuously work on and, and try to get better at um, and delegating. Um, like, like I, I just, yeah, getting better at saying like, is, you know, is this something that I only uniquely can do? And if not, then can someone else on the team do it? And I, I initially felt guilty about kind of giving out tasks. I was like, oh, is this person going to think that I'm just like being a princess or something and I can't do it? But it's really just like, there's just not, I don't have enough bandwidth in a day to really do all the things that, that I could do. So it's very important to really delegate that out to other members of the team. Mm -hmm. And they appreciate it. I mean, people mm -hmm. want to feel impactful, like what they're doing is meaningful. And so I just really try to give like an effusive thank you. Like, oh my God, I'm so glad you did this. Like, you know, thank you for mm -hmm. doing that. So, mm -hmm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? I would say giving maybe constructive feedback in a way that lands well with the person. I you know, tend to be conflict averse a bit. And so um, kind of hesitate to say like, hey, let's talk about this, like what happened and things. And so I've, I've actually gone through a couple of trainings. Like, um, so Stanford has this T group course that's through their continuing education program. And there's a couple other groups that are doing T groups. And it's, there's a lot of practice in just giving feedback and receiving feedback and kind of really working on like saying what's the observable truth, what can you actually, what's, you know, what's clear and observable and then how it landed with you and then, you know, ask how it lands with the other person and just kind of engage in a way that um, could reduce the potential that someone would get defensive about it, but really and still engaging in, you know, the core issue. And in... In the process of developing the company, getting that feedback, um, raising capital, I know you still describe yourself as pre-revenue, but the company also has secured uh, a number of uh, non-reoccurring engineering contracts through so-called gas, through the Air Force. Um, and so I'm curious your, uh, your feedback for entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out how to balance getting that early capital while you're trying to build your team and be a good leader and trying to ultimately get to the reoccurring revenue that you really want long-term? Yeah, I think making sure that the revenue you bring in early is um, along the main path and main trajectory. Um, and, you know, SoCal Gas and the uh, Shell Game Changer grant that we got is very much the case. Like, you know, they, we've, we worked with them and we planned out a scope of work and, it's along the, the path that will get us to a commercial unit. And, you know, we've had to say no to some things, like, um, like the XPRIZE, for example. Um, the team was really excited about the Carbon XPRIZE, where they're doing a prize to, um, for, for 10 teams to, to, to just, you know, show CO2 utilization at a site in Wyoming and Canada. And... Um, the XPRIZE is a really cool thing. I mean, we all wanted mm -hmm. to be a part of it. But the scale that they wanted us to, to do the demonstration was larger than our first dishwasher size unit. And so it just seemed like it was too strong of a detour to do the Carbon XPRIZE. So we ultimately had to decide um, not to do it, to focus on the commercial unit. And, you know, that was, you know, it was kind of a sad moment. It would have been great to have been a part of it. But ultimately, you know, the, the Carbon XPRIZE, like if we had wanted we would have gotten funding at the very end. And so we, you know, we needed to raise funding now and to keep, um, yeah, to keep things focused on the, the main path. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned 24 people on the team. Where is Opus 12 today? And where, what does scaling and growth look like? Yeah, so we, you know, we have our dishwasher size unit and we're looking for, you know, early pathways to get, get those molecules that we're making out there and get them into consumer products. You're selling the molecules themselves? Right. That's yeah. the model. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we also are scaling up and like um, going to that uh, refrigerator size unit um, and just kind of, you know, like, you know, we're expanding space. We're actually doubling our space. We got a new lease in the same building to be able to um, house our larger units. Um, and just really thinking about how do we, you know, just on every metric, improve performance, scale up to larger units, do more biz dev, just kind of like going. Um, it's, you know, there, there's a plan where we definitely are kind of like, trying to find the path of least resistance, mm. basically, to, to get to the end goal. Mm. Given the time frame that it takes to develop what you're developing, how do you balance the biz dev with the ability to execute on the tech side? I know it's easy to promise investors the world to get them bought in. How do you balance that with your ability to develop tech in the time frame that you've promised? Yeah, I th and that's definitely something we have been um, trying to be really strategic about is not over-promising. Um, because yeah, we've definitely seen many examples of companies that have um, overpromised and then underdelivered. So, what we try to do is just really make like manageable steps. Like we've done several uh, validations at other customer site where we actually took our cell, put it, you know, sent it to the you know strategic partner we were just talking with, and replicated the data there uh, with using their equipment to to monitor it. So we've done that a handful of times, and that's a way just to keep the relationship warm and like make sure they, um, you know, know that we're you know meeting our technical milestones. They can trust our data. It's just building trust, and then um, eventually, when we're ready, we can start talking about um, kind of larger deals. Um, but yeah, just finding a way to really engage and demonstrate without saying like, "Hey, here's our massive order that we're going to produce that we're kind of being aspirational for." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Throughout your time in this industry, and maybe similar to your experience being the only black person in your uh, first class and that first class in undergrad, um, the industry that we're in at the intersection of energy and working in venture, working in hardware and engineering, um, overly represented by people who are both white and male. So I'm curious, what's been your journey as a black woman, as a founder in this space? Yeah, it's... Um yeah, I mean, it's had its ups and downs. I'm sure there's like an extra layer of of like ups and downs that I get for being a, a black woman. Um, I, one thing I've done, like in con contrast to my undergrad days, is I've really worked on like my anxiety, and um, I've gotten a lot better with that, which is completely internal. Like I, I don't think many people think that like I I have chronic anxiety, but like it's it's just is like kind of this background thing that was sort of there that um, now that I've kind of worked on it and um, can reach a sense of calmness. I can, can engage better in, in social situations and hopefully less socially awkward and <laughs> things like that. Um, one thing I, I did notice, um, which did bring some calmness, was like, in some ways, um, being like the only black person in, in a situation, you're kind of invisible. Um, like, I noticed several times where people would only remember me as like the black woman in that specific event. Um, which and once I realized that, in some ways, it was kind of freeing because it was like, well, as long as I don't like mess something up really badly or do something really crazy, like 
they're not going to really remember me the next time. And so um, in some ways that was, that brought some comfort to me, although it has, it has kind of sometimes created some interesting interactions because I still sometimes still assume people don't recognize me like as Itasha. And so like there was one person who's this older guy who's like kind of somewhat like he's conference famous, I would say. And I actually, (laughs) I've never heard that term. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. And I had introed him at a conference and I just assumed like, oh, he doesn't remember me. It's no big deal. So I, you know, I just, we, we happen to be next to each other in like some breakfast line or whatever. And I just didn't think to like say, hey, you know, and so, and I think he maybe got offended by because he was like, hello, Itasha. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hi. And, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't, I just like kind of froze and didn't have anything to say. I, I didn't want to be like, well, I didn't think you could see me, you know, <laughs> I thought I was invisible or something like it. And so, yeah, it's been, yeah, there's been interesting layers around it. But I think for the most part, um, you know, now that I am recognizable because like Opus 12 has um, some, uh, like, you know, some people have heard of Opus 12 and, and can recognize me. Like, I think, um, yeah, it, it, it just, you know, it creates some, some uniqueness, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know too often on the show we feature founders and CEOs of the company. I knew you previously, so I invited you to join. Why did you say yes? <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> that's a great question. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, contrary to what it may seem, I do try to, um, I, I do kind of like to be in the background and kind of like, I, I, you know, not be kind of the, um, not be up in front. Um, but I, I do try to say yes to things where um, I think it can be inspirational and um, aspirational to like the next generation of uh, entrepreneurs of, you know, any gender, color, race, or whatever, like, um, and so I, I thought this would fit in that category. Um, I'm happy you said yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So usually on the show too, I ask, most of our guests have, have kids, they're married. And so I'm like, what's it like being a partner and a parent? How do you manage that with being a, a founder? Um, in your case, you are single and may I say ready to mingle. <laughs> and so I'm curious. Yeah. Um, what has it been like on the flip side? What has it been like being single, being a young woman who's a founder and not married with kids? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, and I have to take responsibility. Like for a long time, I didn't prioritize dating as much as I probably could have. And so um, so now that like I am trying to prioritize it, as you say, ready to mingle, um, like it's it does seem a bit tough. I, I think, I wonder sometimes, I think, if you guys are like intimidated or have this like story about like, you know, what it's like to be a founder, which may or may not be accurate. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's tough. Like I do sometimes look at, um, I do sometimes feel behind, like, you know, my colleagues um, have, you know, married and have kids and, and um, you know, I'm kind of in my mid thirties and trying to uh, figure all that out and kind of trying to find space to fit that in. Um, but I, I think it's super important though. I, I mean, part of another part of why I probably am still single is because I do want to make sure I'm in a supportive, solid relationship. Um, it, I think it's in a, it's, it's one of the most important relationships you'll probably have in your life from what I hear. And so it's, you know, I want to make sure that it's with someone that will be a good partner on that, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. journey. Um, but yeah, so figuring it out. 
And I know as part of you wanting to be an astronaut, you want to go to Mars, right? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) One way trip. One one way trip. Like you want to die on Mars. I love to retire, die on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. And and how does that fit into? How does that relate to dating? (laughs) Conversation. (laughs) How's that conversation go? Yeah, you know, it's I didn't didn't think it was that big of a deal, and then, but I like this guy that I've known for ten years. like we we were in Stanford grad school together. We were just friends, and I. But like lately, I'm like, hey, you're older. You want to have kids? You're single. I'm older. Want to have kids? And so I wanted to have like see if we can make this work. And he literally was like, but you're gonna go to Mars in 30 years. I don't know if like I want someone who can like make quilts with me in our 70s. <laughs> we can make quilts on Mars. I know. Like, just go to Mars and make quilts. And yeah, and I was like, I I was like, wow, that didn't seem like that. I mean, it's still a very low probability event like <laughs> that, you know, I will be going to Mars. Like, I would love to, but, like, I'm not, like, living my life and making long-term decisions, like, solely based on that. So, yeah. Gotcha. Um, back to Opus 12. Where will Opus 12 be in five years? Yeah, I'd like to, I'd love to see Opus, we have this, Opus 12 have a suite of um, products, as, as you mentioned, like, like, having, you know, the refrigerator size the uh, shipping container size, the building size system out there in the world, converting, you know, tens, hundreds of tons of CO2 per day, if not thousands or billions of tons of CO2 per day um, in our units that are distributed all around the world. Um, I think we, you know, there, there are many areas where we can fit in, where there's the surplus renewable electricity, or there's CO2 emissions that someone wants to uh, deal with, or there's companies that want the molecules that we can make. So there's lots of opportunities out mm. there. What product are you most excited about that you can make with Opus 12's process? Um, making jet fuel is pretty cool. Um, I'm, I, that'd be really cool just to be able to see, like, I mean, the, the first jet fuel we'll make will probably be, you know, gallons in size. So maybe we could fly a drone or something with, a, with our jet fuel. And that, that'd just be really cool to see something, like, come from CO2 all the way to um, flying an airplane. Absolutely. All right. Um, we are going to move into our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers. Um, I cannot wait to hear the answer to the first question. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> um, hippopotamus. <gasps> You're our second hippo. You know I'm who else hippo? is a hippo? Oh. Jigger Shaw. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be his... so happy to hear this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why? Why hippo? Well, because they're one of a handful of mammals that spend their lives in land and water. And I love the water like I yeah I would totally love that is there and are you familiar I'm sure you are familiar with the stat that hippos uh, kill more people than all other the big five African animals combined every oh, year I did not know that but no I didn't I don't <laughs> read too much <laughs> uh, no they're fierce people don't people don't know hippos are fierce uh what inspires you well science fiction like thinking about the future and and kind of um building this future that I think could be really, you know, cleaner, circular economy, just having this future we all have in mind. Um, I think that vision really inspires me. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Well, if we were going to Mars, I would hop on that train <laughs> to Mars. Um, I think beyond like something that's realistic that I could do. Um, so I, I have a passing interest in, um, what used to be controversial and still is, but cold fusion. 
I think is really cool. Like palladium um, intercalates hydrogen at a really high density. And um, there were some early studies done, uh, like the, the 90s or late 80s, um, where they thought they saw this like enhanced heat that came out of um, electrochemically intercalating hydrogen into palladium. Um, and there, there was a group out of Google X and some Canadian institutions that recently published a paper on cold fusion. It was all negative results, uh, which I think was cool that they published that. Um, and like, yeah, I, it seems like it's maybe getting some more attention. And, and I think even if it doesn't work as like an energy producing a method, it's, it's a really cool thing to study. Love it. Okay, anyway, too much on cold No, fusion. it's great. <laughs> um, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Um, well, definitely uh, my two co-founders are amazing, um, both Nicholas and Kendra. Um, we, we really just work well as a team and um, have just really built this from, uh, from those early days back at Stanford. And I would say my parents, my parents, um, my mom really insisting that I go out on my own and uh, figure it out. It's like a front road, I guess. Lon's <laughs> <laughs> here in the front row. <laughs> What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Like I've learned a lot about emotional intelligence and like um, that used to feel very overwhelming and like, oh, I just like this like anxiety I had in the background was kind of always going to be there. And now I realize that's not the case that like you can, you can't actually like work with your emotions and like tune them, like fine tune them. Mm. Well said. Uh, when are you your best self? I would say in, in the mornings, <laughs> kind of a morning person now. Um, or when I'm out on the water, like I've, I've, um, I live on a sailboat. You live so, on a sailboat. Yes, yeah, so I like love being on the water and like just. How long have you lived on a sailboat? About a year and a half now. It's, it's like it's really economical to live on a sailboat. <laughs> it's like super cheap and, um, and it's great you know, being on the water. And, um, What's your best quality? Resilience and like dealing with uncertainty. What is your worst trait? A conflict aversion. Hmm. I'm working on it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Um, If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I would would give everyone this, um, like, a a universal basic either income and or asset, like giving them access to some renewable electricity source that's local, like, in their backyard. Um, Because just having that, like, fundamental security net of, like, you know, either financial independence or having your energy and basic needs met is just really huge. Mm -hmm. If there was just one or two people who are going to hear this podcast, who would you want them to be? Okay. If it's anyone in the space time continuum, say, um, well, I mean, I come from slave heritage. So like I would, I would, if I could go back in time and like bring my like ancestors to listen to this, I think they would like flip out if they heard (laughs) this um, to see like their, great, great granddaughter or whatever doing this. Finish these sentences for me. If you really knew me, you would know. Um, I have a bohemian spirit. And <laughs> Companies fail because? Working capital. Hmm. Loss of working capital. Hmm. Yeah. Success is? Hollow without someone to share it with. Hmm. That's from uh, Captain Martok of Deep Space Nine. Just, <laughs> a little reference. It's not my own. Love it. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. I would have invested in Bitcoin a lot earlier. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wait, uh, earlier implies you did invest uh, in Bitcoin. Well, yeah, I mean, like everyone has <laughs> Bitcoin now, but like, yeah. Yeah. gotcha. I'm most proud of Opus Twelve. Yeah, so I'm really proud of the team we've built. Proud of the products we we are building, and um, yeah, it's proud of my two co-founders and what we've done. And last question of the night: to build a successful startup, what it takes is amazing team, amazing co-founders. Amazing ecosystems you can be part of, um, and working capital. (laughs) (laughs) With that, please give, actually give me one second, because I'm going to pull up a video so that I can put you on social media. With that, please give a huge round of applause for Itasha Cave. That is a wrap. Thanks to Powerhouse for their partnership, as always. Again, go to powerhouse.fund for more info on future events. And go to Green Tech Media for the show notes and pictures of our guests. If you want to hear about what the entrepreneurs we profile here are up to, we're usually covering them at GTM. So go to greentechmedia.com newsletters to get the news about all kinds of innovative companies straight to your inbox. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as well. We say it a lot, but it's true. It helps other people find this show. Send us a message or a tweet on Twitter for any suggestions on people to interview for this series. And uh, the gang will be back next week for our year-end special. We'll catch you then. I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks very much for being here.